through the week, Cam texted me and said, Stuart, do you think you can work the idea of Father's Day into today's sermon? Uh, yeah, I can, I think, pretty easily. Happy Father's Day. No, just kidding. See, this sermon is not one that's like uh, where all the Amalekites get killed or something and then you're trying to tack on the end. This talk fits brilliantly. Cam, you are playing right into my hands. This talk will finish up talking about God the Father. And that's just a great way for us to think about Father's Day. So that's where we're headed. We're starting a new series called Promise and Fulfillment. And we want to pick up a sort of theological topics. You know, uh, today we're going to be looking at who is God? What's he about across the whole Bible? And we'll look at topics like redemption and Christian living. And so from those topics, we want to try and expand our understanding of the scriptures. This whole year, year of biblical literacy. We're trying to get a grasp of how to read the Bible, how to understand it as a whole, and put all those bits together. So promise and fulfillment is the topic uh, for this next uh, five or six weeks that we're looking at. And um, what I want to focus on today is to start off with two big concepts that will lead us into the whole series, and then look specifically at our topic for today, and that is God himself. So the first big concept is that of promise and fulfillment. Uh, it's where God says, I'll do this, and then he does it. And this is a theme all the way through the scriptures, a really important concept. At one level, we just go, yeah, that's obvious. But it's actually not that obvious when you look at how other religions function. This is a key concept within the Bible. Our God is someone who makes promises. He's a covenant-making God, and he does what he says he'll do. Give her an example. Abraham, incredibly important in the story of the Bible, where God makes promises to Abraham. For example, things like he will become a great nation. He fulfills that promise. Another one is that he will bless the world through Abraham. And that is fulfilled again and again in different ways. It goes right through to the New Testament. And at the very heart of it, you see, like in Galatians, where Jesus is the very center of that blessing. And those who attach themselves to him will be blessed. That's a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. It's a, it's a thing that drives the story of the whole Bible. And it's really important for us to notice those things, uh, to look for them, and to see the ultimate fulfillment in all the promises. And they, of course, crystallize in Jesus, and then in his people and the new world that he brings in. Or another example, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's something where, where God's Spirit has been promised in Jeremiah. We looked at this uh, a few weeks back. Uh, Jeremiah, and then Jesus himself promises the Spirit, and then the Spirit comes. This is part of the promise fulfillment structure. And these are not just small things. You know, God says, I'll, I'll look after you in this verse or that verse, and that's a comforting thing, a feel-good kind of verse, and that's a good thing for our spiritual life. But these kinds of promises, when we think of promise fulfillment in the Bible, this whole overarching narrative is what's meant that God makes a promise, and sometimes over millennia, he fulfills that promise. And he fulfills it primarily, ultimately, we might say, all the promises in Christ. So look for that. Read your Bible, look for the structure of promise and fulfillment, and that'll really help you understand what's going on. The second big concept is an idea of uh, continuity and discontinuity. Let me give you sort of an example. You know, say you move house, okay? Discontinuity? you move to a different house. But continuity, all the furniture goes with you, or most of it. 
there might be a discontinuity. You've moved out of a two-bedroom apartment into a five-bedroom house, and so the triple bunks for the kids are split into three different rooms. There's a kind of continuity and discontinuity here. Uh, but the kids are the same. There's a continuity, but they're in three different bedrooms now. And what was a desk in the corner has become a study. There's a continuity and a discontinuity. That's just an obvious thing in our own life experience. But now think about it for the scriptures themselves. There are lots of moments that we can do this, almost infinite number of times we can say, what is before and what is after? And that'll really help us read the scriptures well. I'm just going to run through a whole stack of them. So, for example, if you're reading a passage from in the Garden of Eden, that will mean something different. It'll read differently from out of the garden when they're chucked out. Adam and Eve are chucked out of the garden. Or if you think about the promises uh, to Abraham before those promises are given and after those promises, things function differently. There's a, a different dynamic in the, the story of the scriptures before Abraham's promises are given to him and then after. Or thirdly, uh, when the people of Israel are in the desert and then when they're in the land. We were looking at this concept of in and out of the land uh, last week, weren't we? Uh, such a key idea. But see, for example, and I think we've pointed this out too, the laws are different when you're in the land and when you're out of the land. Uh, as they're wandering in the desert, the, the Exodus laws are then sort of modified and updated for in Deuteronomy, just when they're about to progress into the land. It's really worth noticing that. Or in the time of the judges and in the time of the kings. God functions differently in how he calls up leaders and, and how he appoints prophets, for example, in one era or the next. Or in the land and out of the land in terms of the exile. They've been in the land, the Israelites, for many, many years, uh, centuries, and then they're exiled out of the land. And the prophets write different things in the land and out of the land. And again, we were looking at that last week. Or the big one, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's, there's a huge distinction, continuity of some things and discontinuity of other things. And we ought to try and notice what those things are. We'll shortly come to what it is about God that we see is discontinuous and what is continuous. Jesus' ministry, uh, before he started his ministry, we haven't got lots of passages, but there are key things about Jesus then and then after his ministry, or even throughout his ministry, you see a before and an after. When he declares who he is, at the beginning it's quite secretive, but later it's much more open. Similarly, we could say before his death and resurrection how things are, and then afterwards what it means for him, what it means for the disciples, what it means for the preaching of the gospel before and after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Or when he's on earth and then when he's in heaven and the Spirit has come, there's another distinction. Or this time of the church waiting. What do we read in the scriptures about this time of waiting as to when Christ then returns, before and after? All these continuity and discontinuity become really important. And it just helps us if we, if we have that approach. So when we look at the scriptures, we're going, oh, okay, I'm going to look out for this. What was the same? What was different about that earlier period as to the period I'm reading about? What's different about this period as to what's going to come later? And so this is a key idea when we think about promise and fulfilment, is to also link along with it the continuity and discontinuity concepts. So just ask the text of each time, each passage you're reading. Each time you sit down and say, where am I up to in the story? What's different before? What's going to be different afterwards? What's the same? That's a really helpful thing. So it is with today's topic, this topic of God. And I've called it Yahweh to Trinity. 
And I'm going to explain those uh, concepts and have a look. So first of all, it's the names of God. We're thinking about who God is and how he's revealed himself, or what you can say about God in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. Well, there are lots of different metaphors for God, lots of different titles for God. Uh, you know, God is like a rock, he's like a fortress, that sort of thing. Uh, but there's names and titles. So titles like he is El or Elyon, uh, Elohim. Uh, th these different names come up. Adonai, they all come up and they have different meanings. El or Elohim just means God. Uh, so uh, that name sort of comes up like Daniel, Daniel. Uh, that's, that's got that little name El in it. That's God. Or uh, Emmanuel, God with us. We might know that as one of the names for Jesus. Or El Elyon is, is a name that's used there and it translates as the God Most High. Do you recall that's the God that Melchizedek, who was in Salem, later Jerusalem, uh, he was in, uh, in uh, that city and he was a worshipper of El Elyon, God Most High. Or the name Adonai, it just means Lord. It can mean Lord uh, like a human Lord as well, but that's a name that's applied to God. It's, a, it's a kind of a title. But there's a very different thing as well functioning in the Old Testament. You get beyond these metaphors and titles, you get an actual name. And the name is Yahweh. Now, we're sort of used to it. I guess you hear it in the preaching. Dave and I and others will just sort of drop that in as that's the God of the Old Testament. And we're a little bit disserviced by the way most of our Bibles translate that word. Because most of them just use the word Lord to describe that or to translate it. And we do miss out a bit, I think, because Lord is, is like Adonai. It's, it's a title more than an actual name. But the point of Yahweh is that is the name that God gives himself in the Old Testament. So I'm going to do you, show you a little bit of uh, Hebrew here. So God's personal name in the Old Testament is this Hebrew uh, four letters. Uh, and it's on the screen there. You can see the first one looks a bit like an apostrophe. That's a, y a yod. It sounds, sounds like y. And then the next letter, and so of course you're going from right to left, different from the way we usually read in, in English. Uh, the next letter is an H, a, a, a ha, huh sound. Um, so you've got y, h. And then the next one is a v sound. We, we usually shift it to a w, w, but it's a v sound, a vav. And then the next one is a hay. So you've got yod, hay, vav, hay. And uh, the, the soundings of it, it's, it's in, broken into two syllables. Uh, it's a, a Y-H-W-H. Two syllables is Yahweh is the way, or Yahweh might be uh, nearer to how it would have been originally said. And uh, so it's written, usually translated uh, as Lord. Now, you'll notice the small caps. See how the, the small caps are there? It's not just L, little O, little R, little D. It's L, small caps, O. Small caps R, small caps D. And that's to, whenever you see that in the scriptures, that's to indicate that the word behind it is not Adnai, little Lord, Lord with little letters, but Lord with capitals is Yahweh. It would have been better if they'd written Yahweh, I think. Just uh, would have helped us a whole lot uh, to comprehend that this is the personal line we're talking about. It's a little bit different between calling someone pastor or calling them Dave. You know, you're relating differently. And Dave is the actual name. Stuart is my actual name. You've got your actual name. Uh, if you're called by only a title, it's a different thing. And in the ancient world, the importance of knowing the name, that's not that different now. But if you know the name of the God, that's really critical.
So, for example, uh, you know, you may have seen some of those Egyptian texts and the big part of the, the Egyptian texts is they are explaining the, the diagrams and stuff. They explain how it is you can get from this life into the next life after you've died. And, and a key to it is that you've got to know the name at each point, the name of the God that will release you into the next stage to release you into the next stage. And eventually, after whatever it is, 40 or 50 names that you've, you've memorized in, in your lifetime, you'll then get through and you'll know the, uh, the, the name to get into the last part. And then your, your heart is weighed and it's weighed to see if it's pure or not. And there's a whole kind of concept around that. But the idea of knowing the name of the God is critical. Knowing people's name now is critical. You know, you ring up and say, G'day, can I talk to Jason? This is a true story from me this week. Can I talk to Jason? Immediately, you, you, you've been treated differently from, oh, is there somebody there can help me with? And you see, to know the name is a critical part of then relating and getting on in that situation. Well, our God has revealed his name. It's Yahweh, the Lord, <laughs> with, with those capitals. It's Yahweh. And he is the covenanting God, the one who makes promises to this world, one who pr makes promises to his people, and the one who fulfills it over years and decades, centuries and millennia, he fulfills those. He's often described as the true and living God. You get the point? This is how he's... And that, that um, idea of Yahweh, it comes from the verb to be. Uh, Yah is, is the idea of the, it, it is a being, it is a, a living thing. And so you have this idea that the God of the Old Testament, different from all those idols, that are just blocks of wood or stone that's been carved, this is the living God, the real one, that we're to deal with in our lives. So that's the revelation of who God is, Yahweh, uh, through that Old Testament time. Well, let's think about as, uh, this idea of continuity and discontinuity when you move from Old Testament to New Testament, because we don't use that name except referring to the Old Testament. That name drops off, come the New Testament. This is a really important thing for us to, to grasp. What we see is Yahweh interacts in the world in lots of different ways. And then when you come into the New Testament, you, you get a glimpse of a different way to talk about God. So let's focus on that, because we're moving now from Yahweh to Trinity, which is the New Testament concept. So in the Old Testament, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. There are actually dozens of these things, but, but uh, three really key ones, and you'll see why they're important. In the Old Testament, each one of these three things seems sometimes to be God and sometimes not. So the angel of the Lord or the word of the Lord, uh, the, the angel of Yahweh or the, the word of Yahweh or the spirit of Yahweh. Sometimes uh, the angel of Yahweh is quite clearly just a messenger. But other times you'll read a passage, there's a passage in Genesis, another one in Judges, where you read and you say, is this angel actually God or just an angel, like we would say? It's really hard to tell. and It kind of moves between one and the other. Uh, similarly, the word of God in the back end of Isaiah, the word of God is an amazing thing. It's like God himself, is, is, it's his breath is kind of, his word is, is moving out and doing stuff. His word won't come back empty. You know, it, it, it's a powerful action thing, so closely linked to God. Uh, similarly, spirit, uh, back end of Isaiah also, the spirit of Yahweh is such a critical thing, comes upon people, or, or is a thing that can be grieved. It, it's, a, it's got personality. So these things are sort of 
heading through the Old Testament, you, you start to get a sense that Yahweh seems complex. There is only one true God, that's Yahweh, but he does seem complex in the way he relates in the world. And I think if you read it like that, it, it sets you up then to go, okay, when we get to the New Testament and we discover there is a much more profound complexity to God, it helps us understand what's going on in that passage and, and how there's continuity and discontinuity in the way things function. So what happens with these words? And I've picked these three deliberately because they're, they're very illustrative of what I want to say here. Uh, but the others are just sort of um, pick up similar themes and would fit into one or other of these categories. So the first thing, what happens to the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord? Well, in the New Testament, angels are very clearly not God. Angels are creatures. Sometimes they're even described as ministering spirits, you know, set below humans to serve humans. Most often, though, they come in as amazing creatures. But notice the word? They're creatures. So we have an ambiguity in the Old Testament. You only ever have in the New Testament that the angel of God, the angel of Yahweh, is a creature, not God himself. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, it's so crisp and clear. You know, at one point, John confuses himself and he falls down and, and, and uh, lies down in front of an angel because he's sort of so blown away. And the angel says, no, 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 you get up. I am not God. Don't confuse me and angels and God. That is not a thing to do. And so in the New Testament, angels are only ever creatures. The word has a different way of functioning. There's a different development. The line between Old Testament and New Testament, when we think about the word of Yahweh, actually becomes a way of talking about Jesus. You remember in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And read a couple of verses down, that's Jesus. He comes into the world. And so where the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh is redefined crisply as a creature in this theme of the word of Yahweh, it's redefined as Jesus. Somehow God himself is the word. So, so what looks like in the Old Testament, kind of, is this God? Well, yes, it is. By the time you get to the New Testament, doesn't mean every time in the Old Testament you read the phrase, the word of God, the word of the Lord, uh, that that is the same as Jesus. That, that would be to mistake the, the way this is working. But by the time you get into the New Testament, the word is Jesus. And then the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament, sometimes one thing, sometimes another, come to the New Testament, very clear. This is God. God in, in, in himself. God is fully the spirit, sometimes called the spirit of Jesus, sometimes the spirit of Christ, sometimes the spirit of God. And that is the father. So you can see where we're headed with this. There's um, this continuity and discontinuity about the way God has spoken of, the way he's revealed himself and the names that are appropriate to apply to him. So in the Old Testament, God is revealed as Yahweh plus lots of titles and metaphors and all those other things. But Yahweh is his personal name. In the New Testament, the personal name is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father of Jesus, the, Jesus is the Son of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Jesus, the Christ. And plus there's lots of cool titles as well. So, so you have an Old Testament revelation, the name of God is Yahweh, and in the New Testament, there's this complexity. So 
onto our next slide. Let's have a look. How do we explain this movement? How do we, how do we get a language that helps us grasp what's happening with Yahweh to Trinity? So the experience of the believers, this story, this unfolding story, this is the key way for us to understand it. This is, in fact, how the Bible has told us about it. Uh, very easy when you start talking Trinity, get lost in all sorts of um, philosophical, unhelpful kind of ways of thinking. Uh, now, really important to spend a lot of time thinking if you're a theologian and work all those details out. But, but just in, in common parlance, we can often get confused and we don't need to be so confused. There is a deep mystery about this, but that comes at the end of grasping these key points, not at the start. It's not a confusion. Uh, mystery is a different concept. So let's go into it. So first of all, what's the experience of the actual believers? Well, first thing, in the Old Testament, the believers knew there was one true God, the living God, and his name was Yahweh. That's very clear. Then in the New Testament, Jesus shows up, and it's clear that he's God, but he prays to his Father in heaven, and he promises the Spirit who is like him. When he's gone, it'll be better, in fact, he says. How can it be better with God gone? Well, because... God, the Holy Spirit, will be with you. So you start getting a sense that there's a complexity in the relationship. When we talk about God, yeah, there's only one God, but you've got to have a complex way of doing it. And then, of course, the Spirit shows up. Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of Jesus, it's God. So that's the experience of the believers. And, and they had to come to terms with it, but they did. And they could write and think and comprehend and, and discuss their Christian experience, their life in the world, and their prayers to God. They got clear around that experience. So how do we think about it? Well, first thing that's really key is there is only one God. In the Old Testament, he's revealed himself. His name is Yahweh. In the New Testament, he's revealed himself. His name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are different variations on that the word, etc., the spirit of truth, you know, there's, there's all those different things. But the Father, Son, and Spirit is very clear. The lovely thing about this is it's not just a kind of a theory, but see, once you know the name, then you understand salvation. Because the joy, the thrill, you see, especially in John's Gospel, but you see it elsewhere too, uh, Peter, uh, 1 Peter, it's just beautiful. It's where we enter into the relationship. See, the point of God being a complex God, one God, but a complex God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's all about relationship. Where you have relationship, you have love at the core. See, this is what distinguishes Christianity from so many other things, every other thing. So you have love at the core, and it's a love which is expansive, not, not a kind of contracted down love. It's a love which reaches out, creates the world, first of all, chooses a people, redeems a people, and brings them into the fellowship of the Spirit, Son, and Father. It is a gorgeous thing. Our salvation is bound up with the reality of who God is, as revealed to us by Jesus, who prayed to his Father, who promised the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. So as we try and think about and explain who is our God, we can tell the story. That's the best thing. That's how God revealed it. So just retell the story. Oh, yeah, well, in the Old Testament, this is how it went. There was God. He gave his name. It was Yahweh. And he was the covenant-making, the promise-fulfilling kind of God, the true and living God. And he was a complex God even towards the end. Not, not really clear what the complexity was going to mean. But by the time you get to the New Testament... You see, yeah, he's, he's complex. And the first thing we discover is Jesus is there. And everyone goes, well, this is God. 
He's forgiving sins. He's calming storms. He's an amazing person. And praying to his father and promising the spirit. So tell the story. That's how the Bible tells it. We can't do uh, a lot better than that. So let me uh, finish up now as we think about Father's Day. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses uh, because it, it links in so beautifully the idea of Christ and the Spirit to the idea of Father. And, and the thing I love about this, uh, this is from Ephesians chapter 3. The first thing he says, for this reason, he's just been talking about the amazing stuff that uh, comes in Christ. You know, when you believe in Christ, all that amazing stuff. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. And then he says, uh, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven on, and on earth derives its name. Uh, the idea of family, the, the patria, the, the lineage. See, if God is there as the father of kind of every concept of fatherhood, that's the idea. Then every family will find its meaning and reality in that father. And so fathers on earth, as they mimic, as they are like that father, then they make a household which is like his household. And the family on earth can take its name from that father, mediated through the human father. It really is a very beautiful and wonderful concept. For this reason, I kneel before the father because of all we have in Christ, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Isn't that beautiful? Let me just pray it over us, shall I? For this Father's Day, for all the, fathers, for all the families. And as we come to terms with the the, the promise and fulfilment, the continuity and discontinuity, as we move from Old Testament into New Testament, as we think about Yahweh moving to Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we kneel ourselves before you. You are such a great and wonderful God. And the families here on earth just give us a glimpse of how great you are. Sometimes they don't measure up much at all, in their best, they uh, give us a reflection of what a great God and family you have in heaven. And thank you, Father, that we are brought into that family, into that relationship of love, of Father, Son and Spirit. And this day we pray for our families on earth. We pray for fathers, for our own fathers, uh, whether here or have passed on, uh, for families where our fathers are missing, we pray, Father, for families where there is dysfunction and discord. And we ask that they might draw a new insight, a new sense of love, having the Heavenly Father as their Father. And Father, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen each one of us with real power through his Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.